Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to Basketball Conference Special Edition. Uh, my name is Joey Weaver. He is Mike McDaniel. Mike, we promised the people we waited way too long to record our week four recap. We are now doing a special edition show. Are you ready? I am ready. Mailbag time, Joey. Mailbag time. Mailbag time. And and we, we decided before this, you are officially the keeper of the mailbag, and that makes you, much like Carl Malone, the mailman. Because I always deliver, Joey. Because I always <laughs> deliver. deliver. It also kind of makes you like Amazon at this point. So Yep. There's that. Um uh, yeah, Mike, we, we've captured some really good questions from the audience, and they were they were building up just a little bit. And so to kind of, you know, thank the people, we got we got a little uh, special show here. So I'm going to let you kind of uh, direct traffic on this one and kind of uh, walk us through some of the questions that we got. So what we got, take it away. Let's start on Twitter, Joey, from Stephen Newman. Where does the Coastal rank among the worst divisions in the Power Five? Go. Uh, not good. Not good. It's towards the bottom. Like, is it worse than the Pac-12 South? Maybe. <laughs> it might be. Um, let me go find something real quick because I saw, and we can sit here and have this conversation about um, kind of what we think and, and kind of what we feel right now. And I think we probably tend to agree that we feel like this is probably arguably the worst division in the Power Five at the moment. But we also have some um, analytical approach to this, we'll say. Um, again, Bill Conley, now over at ESPN, put out a uh, you know division-by-division division ranking right now. Um, of the divisions that he ranked, he's got the ACC Coastal ninth in the country behind the SEC West, Big Ten East, SEC East, Pac-12 North, Pac-12 South, Big Ten West, ACC Atlantic, and the AAC West. Mike, the... Uh, the AAC West is a, a, analytically a better division right now than the ACC Coastal is, and by almost a full point per team on average. Now, I know that this was the question for Stephen Newman was specific to Power 5, but let's take a look at the AAC West right now. Navy, Tulum, SMU, who – SMU looks pretty good, by the way. Um, Memphis, Tulsa, mm-hmm. and Houston. Houston has looked not very good. SMU probably been impressed about of any of those teams. And Tulane has been sneaky good, Joey. Yeah, they have. They really have. Um, so, yeah, I definitely definitely put the ACC Coastal behind the AAC West. That's not surprising at all to me. I mean, if if Houston is the worst team in that division, like, they're, they've undergone a change and, and they've gotten some bad news today with De'Aaron King going to sit out the rest of the year and – I mean, there, there's a lot of things not really going in their favor, but if that's the worst team in your division, yeah, you're probably doing better than the ACC Coastal is right now. Um, you, you list off those teams. Again, Navy, Tulane, SMU, Memphis, Tulsa, Houston. Like, how many of those do you feel better, you know, do, do you feel worse about than Georgia Tech, Virginia Tech, North Carolina, Duke? I mean, 
I mean, you look at the top, yeah, Virginia, probably better than Navy, probably better than all these teams. Um, but I don't know how far down the list you go before you're having serious conversations or just outright giving it to the AAC. Like, the Coastal is, is in a, a real predicament right now, and it's, it's, it's like I said last week on the show, I think this is a serious transition year, especially with a couple of new coaches, and I think we're going to have a few more here before we know it. Yeah, the way, the way that Shane Buchel's played at SMU and Sonny Dykes has that program humming, you know, SMU might be the best team out of either one of those divisions, Joey. SMU might be better than Virginia right now, the way it's looked. They've been more consistent through four games. Again, it's not the same class of, of teams that they've played. Um, but look, I mean, Virginia played Pittsburgh in the opener. That's been their toughest opponent so far. Um, they were able to handle them. SMU has been rolling. They've scored 174 points this already. I mean, they're scoring at an unbelievable clip. They're very good. Um, if you bring this back to Stephen Newman's question in just the Power 5 context, the one division that everybody likes to throw shade at is the Pac-12 South. Well, Joey, USC has looked better than expected. They just beat Utah, a Utah team that I had as a sleeper to go to the college football playoff. Um, Utah is very good. USC, a lot better than a lot of people expected. Um the combination of uh, Matt Fink and Keaton Slovis before he got hurt and JT Daniels before that, before he got hurt. I mean, you know, he is on like their third quarterback at this point. And, you know, in spite of all of that, they sit at three and one on the year and they've looked pretty solid all in all. And this is a program that, of course, was looking to fire Clay Helton. Maybe still are, but he's making a strong case to keep his job thanks to the hiring of Graham Harrell. So, Look, I do think the ACC Coastal is the worst division in the Power Five right now. Um, until you get Miami and Virginia Tech, and um, you know more consistently towards the top of that division, you know Georgia Tech gets back to what they were. North Carolina gets more competitive on a consistent basis. It's really hard to imagine the ACC Coastal being anywhere but the worst, but but the worst division in the Power Five. It continues to completely blow my mind how far the ACC has fallen and how fast it's gone. Because, again, I mean, you look back at just at 2016, and I would I, I would have absolutely gone toe-to-toe with somebody arguing that was the best conference in, in college football. And as I, I think, I continue to think, like, what has really changed that quickly? One of the things that really occurred to me, Mike, is, again, we, we've talked about this a little bit, is, like, it was the quarterback play in that division, in, in that conference, right? Like, how many of those quarterbacks are now starting in the NFL? You had Daniel Jones at Duke, LOL. You had Lamar Jackson, who's starting for the Ravens. I mean, you had uh, Deshaun Watson for Clemson. He's starting for Houston. You had Nathan Peterman for for Pittsburgh. He was a second-round pick. He hasn't quite panned out in the NFL, but second-round draft pick ain't bad. Uh, you know, like, like there was so much better quarterback play. He had Mitch Trubisky, Mitchell Trubisky, excuse me, for North Carolina. He started tonight for the Bears, if we record on Monday night, like, you have an inordinate number of quarterbacks who've quickly gone into the NFL and, you know, transitioned and, and kind of been succeeding in the NFL. Like maybe that's the piece we shouldn't be taking for granted here. Maybe that was the outlier and, and we just shouldn't expect as much moving forward, but I don't know, just so many things have, have seemingly gone downhill. I mean, that was, that was the last year before things went really South on Larry Fedora. Um, that was, you know, the last year that Paul Johnson was really particularly good at Georgia tech. Um, Pittsburgh has, again, kind of been a mess since firing Matt Canada or, or at least losing Matt Canada to LSU. Um, I don't know. It's, it feels like Virginia is about the only team that's gotten better in that time, and they've ascended to the, be the cream of the crop here. A lot of rebuilding going on, Joey, which leads to our next question. 
from Mike Cavendish. I'm sorry, Mike. I'm butchering your last name here. Mike Cavendish on Twitter. Did Mac, Mac, Mac Brown, did Mac's non-North Carolina teams at Texas fairly catch a rep for being soft? And with the loss to App State, has that mild scent now followed him back in his second stint at North Carolina? So he's asking, were his team soft at Texas, like everybody would love to say, towards the end of his tenure? And has that followed him back to North Carolina following that loss to App State? I don't know how I feel about this. And I'm, I'm a little bit struggling to remember because it's been so damn long ago that he was at Texas. Um, I mean, I was still in college at that point. And I'm, I mean, that's, that's been, again, a super long time ago. I don't remember his teams being soft as much as they were just kind of inconsistent. I think there was a, a lot less maybe uh, – I don't think the top-end talent was quite there. And then there were some schematic shortcomings that – they, they get a lot less exposed when you have an obscene level of talent, you know, such as a, a Vince Young led team that goes and wins the national title. And, you know, the Colt McCoy, Jordan Shipley team that went to the national title game in 2009. Like after that, I, I don't know if it was being soft necessarily as much as kind of just no schematic advantage and no talent advantage. And next thing you know, you're like a six and six, seven and five team. Yeah. And then specific to what we just saw on Saturday with App State being North Carolina, I don't think it was North Carolina being soft. I think it was North Carolina being young, especially a quarterback. Now, Sam Howell's been great, but you consider that that roster, North Carolina's very young. And look, it's Mac Brown's first month back at North Carolina in, in game, right? Like this is a new thing in North Carolina they're trying to implement and a more consistent, more coherent offensive unit is something they're trying to develop. They haven't had that in recent years, and that's why they've struggled so much. They lost to a really good Appalachian State team that's further along in the process of being good than North Carolina is at this point. Does North Carolina have more athletes in App State? Yeah, sure they do. But App State's got plenty of themselves, and they're better coached, and they're more experienced. they got more veterans on that roster. They have less turnover than North Carolina has. So let's call it what it is, right? They lost to a better team on Saturday. I don't think it had anything to do with North Carolina being soft. I just think App State's better. That's why I picked them and went out right on the preview, Joey. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and I mean, North Carolina made a lot of mistakes in that game, right? I mean, Sam Howell, as good as he was at times, had a couple of picks, like – I think that's definitely the the being young piece that you're seeing there is turning the ball over, missing opportunities when they're presented to you. Um, those are things that I think will get figured out, you know, maybe give it four to six more games. But um, I, I feel, I, I feel like I'm impressed by what I've seen from this team so far. Again, I think they've kind of outperformed my expectations to a certain degree, especially given what they have been the last couple of years. I mean, I think they're coming off, six and 18 over the last two years, if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, it's been bad. So, yeah. So this program was in kind of a bad spot. So I think give it a little bit of time, but I don't think it's a softness issue again. I, and I think this is maybe the biggest difference that you're seeing with Mac Brown's team now versus what you saw later in the Texas era was I, I think at this point, he's going to have a little bit of a schematic advantage because he's got a couple of really good coordinators between Phil Longo and Jay Bateman that, I think kind of make that difference. You know, I don't know that they're going to have an obscenely high talent level there any, any more so than they ever did under Fedora or under anyone else, but that schematic advantage will go a long way as these systems get installed. So you just got to give it some time. Giving it time with some good assistance leads us into Andrew Parker's first question. Shout out Andrew Parker. Shout out Andrew Parker, number one fan via email with FSU hiring Jim Levitt and for Chantech hiring Jerry Kill. 
I'm pretty confident that Willie Taggart and Justin Fuente have given themselves at least another two seasons of coaching at their respective universities. That leaves Steve Adazio and Pat Nardog Narduzzi as the two coaches I see on the hot seat this offseason. Who do you think gets fired first? He, he says, I'm going Steve in, in season. Wow, it's shoot your shot. Mm-hmm. And which do you think ends up as a consultant at Bama trying to help them figure out how to compete with Clemson before the playoff? Wow. Okay. A lot of, there's a lot going on here. Let's start. Let's start with the first, let's start with the first point. I don't think the hiring of Jim Levitt for Florida state or the hiring of Jerry kill ensures that either coach is around for the next two seasons. Do you? No. Um, I think it's completely reasonable to suggest that these two coaches will be around for the next two seasons, but I think that's separate of these two hires. Correct. I'm with you. I'm with you there. Plus like, when I look at Willie Taggart and everything that Florida State's gone through, especially last year and how they look this year, um, I think we're having a different conversation about Willie Taggart if they lose that game on Saturday against Louisville. But now that they won it and they're back to 500 and they have a realistic shot now at getting bowl eligible and taking a step back in the right direction, I, I think Willie Taggart sticks around. Justin Fuente's got too big of a buyout at this point. He's got like a $15 million buyout. I know Taggart's buyout's pretty big as well. Look, they find that money. Universities find that money if it gets bad enough. I just don't think it's going to get bad enough at either Florida State or Virginia Tech for that to happen this year, especially after what we saw out of Florida State specifically this past Saturday winning that game against Louisville. So there's there's that. I think they're both going to be around for a bit, and I think they'll both I think they'll both figure it out, Joey. I might be in the minority on that, but it's been kind of up and down for both of them. Um, so he but, says, who do I – Probably worth mentioning here, and, and you talk about it, especially the financial situation for both of these programs, and Fuente having a huge buyout, and, and Taggart's under a, a big contract as well at Florida State probably won't be able to get out from under. Like, I feel like there's a lot of these coaches, too, that we're kind of iffy on that are in that situation, that have somehow, like, how it is that these universities have kind of gotten themselves into such precarious positions with, like, trying to be able to afford a buyout, it's probably not helping this whole situation. I mean, you're not like really lighting a fire under a coach's ass if it's like, so you're saying if I underperform, you're going to give me $15 million to not coach here anymore. That sounds terrible. You know, would hate for that to happen. That sounds like a shame, right? Like, because I, I, the other thing I want to bring up is it kind of helps to flavor this discussion and, and kind of future question that we're going to hit on here. Um, we, we did get an email about a month ago, and I, I don't know how we missed this and kind of, I think we forgot to bring this up entirely on the podcast, but um, Pit fan Hobie Webster emailed us and, and made the point. With regards to Narduzzi being potentially on the hot seat, he's under contract until 2024. Pitt won't be in a position to fire him for several years unless there's a Fedora-level collapse. So we're talking about, I mean, that's five seasons after this one that Narduzzi's still under contract for. Why? How? Right. Like, what? Really? Like, I don't, I don't know how these athletic associations get themselves into these positions. Yeah, and you know what? They, they're quick to pull the trigger on those contract extensions, too. I mean, Justin Fuente's gotten a couple now since he's arrived in Blacksburg, and you know, this latest one pushed that buyout figure up, which is interesting because this is the worst that Virginia Tech's looked in the last 15 games or so. They just haven't been very good. Um, you think about what Notre Dame did. It's the ultimate example with Charlie Weiss. Charlie Weiss has won nine one season. All of a sudden, Notre Dame had been so starved for success for so long to throw the house at Charlie Weiss, and he's under contract for 10 years. Contract finally ends up expiring a couple of years back. And now they're in a much better situation under Brian Kelly, but it took a while for Notre Dame for as much money as they produce, even in their with their athletic boosters and their athletic department. It took a while for them to get away from that 
that contract for Charlie Weiss. It was a massive albatross. And you think about Notre Dame and all the money they have. I mean, there are a lot of teams within the ACC. We talked about Virginia Tech. We talked about Pittsburgh, even Florida State, who don't have nearly that much money that it's a school like Notre Dame has. Florida State's the one that was far and away the closest to that in regards to athletic booster money. It's crazy, though. These schools get in these weird, precarious situations from a monetary standpoint with these coaches where, you know, even if they want to make a change, they really can't unless they find money from enough boosters to cobble together. And, you know, then you're handcuffing yourself for the next hire. You can't necessarily spend the way that you want to spend. At least that's the case with a lot of these ACC schools not named Florida State or Clemson. So uh, it's a slippery slope. Um, Let's hope that some of these some of these schools figure it out. But I guess to answer his question, you know, money aside, who gets fired first between Steve Adazio and Pat Narduzzi, in my opinion, especially after Pat Narduzzi's win with Pittsburgh against UCF on Saturday, it's got to be Steve Adazio. I think he's on the hottest seat in the ACC, not named Wooly Tiger. Dudes to the right, dudes to the left, stuck in the middle with you. Shout out Steve Adazio. Yeah, he's the guy. Um, I, especially, you know, contract situation. And like you mentioned, I mean, he's pulled off a couple of huge wins. Pat Narduzzi at this point, probably not that guy. Um, we'll see if this situation kind of continues to positively develop with Mark Whipple as offensive coordinator. I mean, it seems like it's going better so far, but um, at this point, yeah, I mean, I think coming off, you know, a loss to Kansas and a little bit of screwing around with Rutgers, um, Boston college here in what year six of this, you know, Adazio era, like, this is what we're getting, you know, and it's if, if Boston College makes a bowl game this year, it's probably because the ACC is down and, and there's a lot of easily winnable games in there. It's not as much a thing of like this is a well-established, high-functioning program at this point, right? Like drop this Boston College team into the ACC in 2016 and this is like a three and nine team. Um, it's not it's not that particularly good at this point. And so if it's me, I – there's an argument to be made about whether Boston College could realistically do better on a consistent basis as a program, and I, I don't know necessarily that I, I think that they could. Um, but at some point, I mean, you got to try something, I guess. And, and this seems like the, the the you know prime pickings with the ACC where it stands right now is like again, there's a lot of wins to be had out there if you just have like a functional, consistent program. And and Boston College, like most of these programs right now, is is not functional, consistent. Um, put it this way, Mike, Louisville, year one under Scott Satterfield, four games in, coming off of, you know, the dumpster fire of all dumpster fires last year that, that Louisville was, they rank four spots higher in the S&P Plus rankings than Boston College does. And that is why nobody feels great about Steve Adazio right now. Moving on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, moving on to a more consistent team. You talked about consistency in the conference. Here's question number two from Andrew Parker. Do you think UVA is able to keep up this streak of play with all the momentum they are building? They seem an incredibly, they seem to be an incredibly unstable squad hinged entirely around Perkins, the way VT used to be with Michael Vick. Joey, you go first. Well, I, I've got a little bit on this, but it's mostly based on what you said on the week four recap, which is about Virginia's ability to run the ball or lack thereof. It, I mean, the run game at this point is almost entirely centered around Bryce Perkins. And like we discussed, I don't know how sustainable that is over the course of a full season. And that's a guy that you really, really need to be healthy there in the back half of November with some big games and trying to beat Virginia Tech and trying to go to the ACC championship game and like all these things. So, Mike, I think you kind of put it best is that it, it really is about whether they can get the running game going outside of Bryce Perkins. 
because I don't think this is sustainable over a full 12 game schedule, especially talking about like a New Year's six game or something like that. That ain't going to work. It's not going to work, which is why, you know, while they have a high ceil- a high floor, I think they have a pretty low ceiling. Um, they're not a complete team. They play decent defense. They have a quarterback who does it all for them offensively. They don't run the ball consistently with their running backs. Uh, they do have a couple playmakers on the outside, a receiver, and their offensive line has been semi-decent. So it's just kind of been a roller coaster on offense, Joey, which is why I think this Notre Dame game on Saturday is going to tell us a lot about where Virginia is at as a program and how consistent and sustainable this is moving forward. I tend to think that this is kind of an aberration. Um, not not that Bronco Mendenhall is not building a winning program there. I think he is. But I think for them to be an 8, 9, 10-win team on a consistent basis, you're going to have to have more than just – Bryce Perkins controlling everything on offense because once he's gone next year, I have no idea what Virginia is going to look like on offense, especially if they still can't run the football. Yeah, really, really good barometer game coming up this weekend against Notre Dame. Yeah, we're going to learn a lot about Virginia with the way that they are able to hold up or not against the Irish. Totally agree. Uh, third question from Andrew Parker: Jamie Newman is a better quarterback than Bryce Perkins. Not really a question. Just trolling those UVA quarterback truthers. Those guys were all in my mentions. And you know what, Joey? Not only is Bryce Perkins not as good as Trevor Lawrence, but so far this year, Jamie Newman, Wake Forest quarterback, he's been the best quarterback in the conference. Changed my mind. Um, best thing I got is that Jamie Newman sat half the year behind Sam Hartman last year. That's about it, right? I. I can't explain why. All I know is he did. Maybe he was suspended or something. I don't know. But Sam Hartman wasn't all that good. And Jamie Newman sat on the bench. And then he came in, and we were like, where the hell has this been? <laughs> yep. So, Jamie Newman, Joey, 71% of his passes completed this year, 1,278 yards, 12 touchdowns, only two interceptions. He has been phenomenal. You know, Mike, we had a little bit of a, a rebranding that we discussed between you and I that I we have actually completely forgotten to bring up on this here podcast. You know, a lot of people like to refer to Wake Forest, the, you know, the Steam and Deeks running Dave Clawson's offense. It's the claw fence, right? Of course. Mike, Mike, come on. This is White Claw Summer. This is <laughs> Dave Clawson and the White Claw Fence. <laughs> Jamie Newman, uh, Jamie Newman sitting here masterfully running the white claw fence up there in, in uh, Winston-Salem, yep. anyways. Hot girl summer, baby. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, he has been so good, so solid. You know, we were talking, I mean, he's he's been their best player in every game they've played so far. Like, And that's more than you can say about any other quarterback in the conference, what that's worth. Jamie Newman is currently, this is from Cam Meller. He's pro football focus Cam on Twitter. Jamie Newman is currently the nation's highest-graded quarterback on passes targeted 10 or more yards down the field. He's legit, folks. Yes, he is. And you know what, Joey? We were talking about this before we hit record. What's even more astounding that even though, you know, Wake Forest obviously has several receivers that are very good, Kendall Hinton, Sage Surratt, Scotty Washington, all very good receivers, the fact that that stat about Jamie Newman being one of the most efficient passers in the country on passes thrown 10 or more yards down the field at Wake Forest tells you everything you need to know about what Dave Clawson has done with that program offensively. It's that white claw offense, Mike. White claw offense, man. <laughs> um, um, put it this way, pro, pro football focus grading him the highest among quarterbacks in some of those throws. What are the odds Jamie Newman's getting drafted? What are the odds number one he comes out this year, right? He's a junior. Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't come out early, Jamie Newman. 
maybe I'm being a little bit of a Debbie Downer here, but I'm not so sure that he's getting drafted. Um, at least not anywhere before like the sixth round. I mean, it felt like I don't know the uh, the Wolford wagon was a little bit more of a traditional quarterback, and I think he was what like a sixth or seventh round pick. Yep, out of this offense. So late round flyer. You know, yeah, it might be late. Don't get your hopes up for the draft. That's all I'm saying. Late round flyer. Um, Joey, we got a brewery specific question that I feel like you need to answer here, and then we can jump in if you want. We can jump into some coaching replacement odds. I think to wrap this thing up. Oh yeah, let's do it. So again, from Andrew Parker, can you send up some Carbach Brewing Growlers to me? I need that again in my life. Joey, explain to me what that is. Uh, Carbach is a big brewery here in Houston. Um, it is arguably the biggest, if not the second biggest brewery in town. Um, there is one that's older that's you know potentially bigger, and it's still kind of locally owned. But Carbach uh, was founded not long before I got here and quickly uh, grew to the size that they were uh, bought out by Anheuser here a couple of years ago. And there was like a really big like hipster beer nerd like rebellion against them. And certain beer bars, you get nasty looks now if you're asking if they have any Carbach. So um, careful. But I think they make really good beer. Um, I got some stuff I really like that they do. And um, I think the quality maybe has gone down a little bit since Anheuser bought them and you know, probably changed the business model a little bit and don't want to spend as much on ingredients and yada, yada, yada. But uh, ultimately, I think they make really good beer. They do a really good job. Um, Andrew, if you're looking for some Carbach to be sent to you, um, I, I don't commit to anything that might be considered you know, commercial crime, such as, I think, shipping alcohol across state lines. Um, but the DMs are open if you're ever coming to, coming to visit Houston or – you know, wanted me to send you a postcard or anything like that. And uh, just let me know. And, you know, we'll see what we can work out. DMs are open. Hit me up at FTRS Joey. Hey, Joey, one more before we get into the coaching odds. There was one more Andrew Parker question that I think we should tie into uh, talking about Narduzzi a second ago, but I think we still need to hit this here. How does Narduzzi use that win over UCF to get that Michigan State job? Please help us ACC football fans get rid of him. <laughs> I uh, guess that is the hope at this point. If you're an ACC fan looking for Narduzzi to be out, um, yeah, I'll be honest. D'Antonio's not going anywhere, though. That's the problem. He's yeah not going anywhere anytime soon. I don't. Yeah, I don't know if they get rid of him. I mean, he's in an institution up there at this point. Um, yep. I saw a graphic. I was watching. I think it was the first night of of the year that Michigan State was playing. I forget who there. It was like Tulsa or someone or whatever, and uh, they brought. Uh, Mike D'Antoni – no, no, hold on. Uh, who am I thinking of? Who's the basketball coach at Michigan State? Um, Tom Izzo. They had Tom there Izzo. They had Tom Izzo in the broadcast booth, and they made the point. It's like Michigan State is defying all the odds by a mile. They have not hired a football or basketball coach in like 20 years or something like that. Pile up that money. Both of these guys are an absolute uh, institution up there. So, um, yeah, D'Antonio probably not going anywhere. If he did – I guess they'd probably go after Narduzzi, but it's not like he's been really lighting people up at Pittsburgh. So seems like it'd be a, a bit of a weird strategy. I don't know. For sure. All right. Coaching odds? Yeah. Uh, first of all, great questions from everybody. Thank you guys for, for writing in. Uh, really appreciate those. This has been a little bit uh, – I'll say this has been a little bit fun. This has definitely been fun. Yes, um, for sure. <laughs> we got an email today, Mike. Um, we get these periodically with different odds. Usually they're like Heisman odds. Uh, before the season, you'll get some like win total odds that are sent every – couple of months or whatever but 
There was one that came out today with a couple of things that were kind of assorted coaching odds and, and kind of predicting some of these coaching situations. And there were a couple of them that really jumped out to me and it got tweeted out from the BC podcast, ACC Twitter account. So you can go see it there if you're interested, but a couple with real ACC implications on them. Um, the first one in the case that Willie Taggart is fired, which again, at this point seems wholly unlikely. Um, it would take something pretty extraneous, I think for that to happen. But um, if, if Willie Taggart were to get fired, who would be the replacement coach odds on favorite five to two Dino Babers. Huh? Not sure I love that. I don't think I love that either. Not sure I love that. Now, if you asked me at the conclusion of the 2018 season, I would have told you something a little bit different. But Dino Babers and his penchant for not building up a consistent defense really makes me wonder how he can handle that Florida State job. Yeah, this is not looking great for him. And I don't know, to some degree, maybe, maybe you talk yourself into, like, what are the ultimate limitations of the Syracuse program? And does that get easier at Florida State in terms of recruiting and facilities and things like this? Maybe, but I, I I get wary of these these programs that are going to go hire a guy that's had like one really good year somewhere, right? Like I maybe they do hire him, but I don't know if that's necessarily the right hire to make. Oh, you mean like Willie Taggart? Oh yeah, like Willie Taggart. Yeah, <laughs> for example, um, Dave Clawson also on this list at four to one. I guess third best odds behind Mike Gundy. Mike Gundy would be an interesting fit if you like offense. Mike Gundy would be, a, I think, would be a great fit there. I think he'd do a ton of damage there at Florida State. Um, I don't know that you're ever really getting him out of Oklahoma State. Maybe the game has changed now with T. Boone Pickett, Pickens gone, uh, rest in peace. But I, I don't think he's a realistic candidate in a lot of places. Yeah, Dave Clawson four to one. I, I don't hate that. I, I think it's only a matter of time before he gets a big time coaching job. We've talked about that for a while. It's like, where would that be? Um, I don't think Florida State's the one, Joey. I have a differing opinion on that. I think Dave Clawson should end up somewhere that he almost ended up a couple of years ago, but I don't know if it would ever happen. I think he would end up at Tennessee. I think he'd be fine there, but yeah, Tennessee fans would hate it. It really does feel like that would be a weird fit, and, that, and that's what we've talked about. Is like he probably should qualify at this point for a bigger job, but finding the right fit is going to be a bit of a challenge. Um, I don't know exactly what that needs to look like. So, yep. Clawson at four to one. Um, other candidates of note: Matt Campbell at five to one, Urban Meyer at seven to one, Josh Heupel eight to one. He's at UCF. Scott Frost at twelve to one. Of those, I really only think Josh Heupel is really the. Uh, I think that's the only viable candidate, honestly. Um, I don't. I mean, Matt Campbell's not leaving Iowa State. He just signed for a bigger contract, and you're going to have to pay more than Florida State's going to pay for that. Urban Meyer isn't going to get in the middle of it. Of Florida State and what that is right now, and Scott Frost is not leaving Nebraska for that. So, if anything, it's maybe Josh Heupel. I could actually—I mean, that would—that would work. Yeah. Also, like even with Scott Frost having the obviously the history as the UCF coach, Scott Frost hasn't really done anything in Nebraska yet to make me think that he's ready to take a Florida State job. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's gotten incrementally better, but it's not like the overnight change. I mean, I think. He took over like an 0 and 12 UCF team, and they went six and six, and then they went 12 and 0. If I'm not mistaken, like that's a pretty remarkable turnaround that would catch your eye. Look, he's he's done it, and here's the reason why. Here's the reason why I'm wary of it, though. And look, Justin Fuente authored one of the biggest Group of Five turnarounds in the last 
15, 20 years at Memphis. Memphis was a terrible program before Justin Puente got there. He promptly take he promptly takes him to a bowl three out of his four years there. Takes a Virginia Tech job. It looked really good early, and now it's not looking so great. And that's why I'm a little bit weary about Scott Frost. Just saying. Yeah, that's valid. Um, that's real valid, I think. So, yeah, I don't know that either of those guys out of the ACC would be necessarily the right fit. I need to see a little more consistency, you know, a little more tenure, I guess, from Gino Babers to some degree. Um, and then Clawson, I just don't know that that's the right fit for him in particular. Yep. Which, thank you. we talk about Michigan? Would, well, I was going to say, thinking that Tennessee would be the right fit is also a bit of mental gymnastics. We'll put it that way. But, um, yeah, sure. hit Michigan sure. real quick. Um, so, again, the idea of if Jim Harbaugh is fired, which that's a different story. That's a different discussion. But if Jim Harbaugh is fired, who are the prime candidates to take over? The, the favorite in the clubhouse at 3-1 to one is David Shaw out of Stanford, which is kind of an odd place to be. Um, but second favorite on this list, Bronco Mendenhall out of Virginia at 7-2. to two. Yeah, well, look, David Shaw goes from one school with very high academic expectations to another school with very high academic expectations, but it's a little bit easier to, for him to get his football players into Michigan than is at Stanford. That's why it's an attractive fit, Joey. Um, with that being said, Bronco Mendenhall is 7-2. to two. He has never been at a school with expectations like Michigan, and if he gets a call, I think he's picking that up, Joey. You know, he's a guy who... Look, I mean, he spent a lot, of, a lot of years at BYU, made kind of a weird move to UVA. UVA is obviously, you know, he's been authoring a very nice, solid, consistent rebuild there over the last couple of years, and he's gotten it back going in the right direction. But you have a very defined ceiling at UVA that you don't necessarily have at Michigan, Joey. And Bronco Mendenhall has been at this for a while, and he's yet to be at a school with the type of expectations and, more importantly, the type of resources that Michigan has. Mm-hmm. If Michigan calls, you answer. And if they're interested and you're interested, it's a match made in heaven. I feel like Bronco Mendenhall would be an excellent fit in Ann Arbor. I don't know if it would be the most popular hire in the world among the fans there, but if you've paid attention at all to what Bronco Mendenhall does, I think you realize that he's a very good coach. Um, and he's a guy who has done more with less in his entire career. I'm interested to see what he could do with all those resources that Michigan would have to offer. Yeah, I can definitely see that working out. No one what he's capable of and, and kind of the type of program that he's run. I mean, I think that would be a really good fit and he could do really well there at the big 10 East. Um, I wonder to a certain degree how much runway he would get. Um, right. This does not seem like it would be a very patient fan base. Right. That's the only, that's the only question I have too. And it seems like the kind of thing he might want to partially tear it down and rebuild it. I don't know how that'll fly in Ann Arbor. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I see the fit. The other thing that I wonder about here is that as long as he sat at BYU generally successful and didn't go anywhere, I don't know how quickly he's looking to pick up and leave Virginia, you know, for the next big thing. And truth, truth be told, I mean, this is one of those, like, blue blood type jobs in college football that there's probably only 15 or so programs at this point that anybody could go coach at and reasonably have a shot at winning a national title, Right. Right. And this is one of them, I think. I mean, this is the type of program that you can get the level of talent at that you need to win a national title in this day and age of football. This is one of those places. And, and yeah, I mean, if you're given the opportunity, it seems like it's a good idea to go for it. But Mendenhall also a bit of a weird cat. So who, who knows what he does and doesn't jump at? I don't know. 
it, these jobs are few and far between. And when they call, you pick up. And mm-hmm. I just feel like if you can get over the factor of, okay, they got to be patient with him there, then I think he'll be a good fit. But with that being said, Joey, like, say Harbaugh leaves and Bronco Mendenhall accepts the position at Michigan. The cupboard is far from bare there, right? Like Michigan is not in the same position that they were when Harbaugh was hired, taking over from Brady Hoke. The program was in a much worse place. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Harbaugh's had his struggles at Michigan, but it's all relative, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. Michigan's still been very good during his tenure there. They've been a good football team. They just haven't reached that extra level of great slash elite on a, on a consistent level. And they haven't beaten their rivals and that's gotten the fan base uneasy about, you know, their most beloved son, not panning out as a head coach there. I mean, that that's the other piece of this whole thing is like just the discussion of we should get rid of Jim Harbaugh at this point. Like just imagine Mike, your coach goes 10 and three, 10 and three, eight and five, 10 and three, and you're ready to fire him. Like really? The expectations are, the expectations are, off the rails in Michigan, but he hasn't beaten Ohio State, and that's that means a lot to that fan base. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but that's the standard. I mean, that's the standard right now. Ohio State's consistently in the top five, consistently in the conversation for the playoff and national championships. That's where Michigan wants to be. And until they beat Ohio State, they're not going to get there, dude. I'll tell you what, you you fire a coach that's won ten games three times in four years. I mean, that is kind of the version of. Uh, selling your soul to the devil like you deserve whatever comes your way after that like yeah you better hope it works because there's a good chance it doesn't and you're probably only hurting things more than helping by getting rid of a guy like that um yep i would be very careful if i'm michigan fans on what i call for here i would agree just keep an eye on it yeah for sure um, the other name that was on this list, by the way, we probably should mention Dino Baber is also there at five to one. I don't like that mm-hmm. fit for him. I that is nope. probably way too big of a jump for him. Worse than Florida State. Take the Florida State job before you take that one. Agree, agree. Um, the name on here that I actually also kind of like more than David Shaw, which by the way, this would be David Shaw's second head coaching job and second time following up Jim Harbaugh to head coaching job. So fun little fun fact for you people at home. Uh, the name on here that I really, really like that I don't think it would actually happen. And I don't think they would, he would actually go for it, but I think it would be a great, great fit. Kyle Whittingham. I agree. And he's a fantastic coach. Mm-hmm. I was going to say he's built an unbelievable level of success and consistency at Utah. Um, yep. What he does would translate really well to Michigan. More with less. Mm-hmm. It's the exact, exact same blueprint with Bronco Mendenhall. I feel the exact same way about Whittingham that you do. Yep. So. Yeah, so I, I don't really expect either of those jobs to open up. I guess we'll have to wait at least until Michigan plays Ohio State again this year, which, good luck, Michigan. But uh, That won't go well. Yeah, I don't know that I necessarily expect any of those guys to really be on the move if that were to happen. But, I don't know, time will tell. We'll have to uh, follow up and see how that goes. It's <laughs> I mean, I, I think the Michigan job could get a little dicey, not because they'll necessarily fire, just because I think Harbaugh has a pretty good – I think it's a pretty good shot Harbaugh walks away. Just says, you know what, this is crazy. I'm done. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time. I think he walked away from the 49ers, didn't he? He did. So, it feels like that would be Michigan's loss, frankly. Um, I don't I don't know how much better you're getting than that right now. So, I mean, it was a home run when they hired him after, you know, coming off of a Super Bowl appearance and – you know, you had the Brady Hoke experiment gone wild. And, you know, Michigan fans 
just haven't remembered how bad that was, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they just, how quickly they forget because they experience success, but can't just climb the mountaintop and get that one step higher. I mean, can you imagine it's the same scenario at Notre Dame with Brian Kelly, right? Imagine if the fan base was like, hey, Brian Kelly, get out. Like you win nine and 10 games a year. Yeah. Like we, you haven't, you haven't beaten an elite team get out. I mean, it's a very similar thing, except Harbaugh rubs a lot of people the wrong way in a way that Brian Kelly does not in the fan base at Notre Dame. That's yeah. the difference. I I don't know, man. I, I keep looking at this Jim Harbaugh record. I mean, he went 11-1 two years in a row at San Diego. He took Stanford from a perennial basement team to 12-1 in the Orange Bowl in 2010. He went to the 49ers. He won 13, 11, and 12 games. They went to the NFC Championship game, the Super Bowl, and the NFC Championship game in three years. Before going yep. eight and eight, then he goes to Michigan and goes ten and three, ten and three, eight, five, ten and three. They finish in the top fifteen three of those four years. Like, can somebody like just get off his ass on this? Like, leave a like, leave a guy alone. Like, at the very least, you are winning a lot of football games with him as your head coach. And just because it's one or two less than you really want to win, like, it's way more than most people get to win. Got to beat your rivals. Uh, he won't do it. Hasn't done it. Didn't yeah. beat Wisconsin. Won't beat Ohio State. Got to beat your rivals. That was really concerning. They did not look ready to play whatsoever against Wisconsin nope. in that game. That's the most troubling thing. Like you said, they did not look ready to play. So, I don't know. Keep an eye on it. Mike, that's all I got. You got anything else on this uh, mailbag and, and more episode, we'll say? We're, we're good, man. Hopefully we gave the people what they want here with an extra podcast this week to make up for us being a little bit tardy on the preview. I recap. Think so. recap. So, Sorry. Recap. Bonus content. Um it's going to be a lot of fun to edit. We'll see how that goes. Uh, yeah, Mike, that's all I got. We're going to get out of here. We're going to come back. We're going to preview some week five action, which should be a lot of fun. Um, interesting slate coming up. We're finally going to hit some some heavier conference play, so we'll get a, get a pretty good indication of where everybody stands, at least for this week, and it'll probably completely change by the following week because nobody's consistent in this league at this point. So uh, stay tuned for all the good times that ensue with that. The ACC circle of suck begins in earnest this weekend. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, shout out North Carolina. <laughs> shout out North Carolina. God. God. Yep. All right, uh, Mike, let's get out of here. We're going to come back and preview those games. In the meantime, they can find us on Twitter. I'm at FTRS Joey. He is at Mike McDaniel CFB, and together we're at BC Podcast ACC. Uh, you guys can find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Breaker, the Overcast app, uh, and most importantly on the Anchor platform. Highly recommend it. Um, go use them to create a podcast if you haven't already and you want to. So go check them out there. Uh, Mike, they can send us an email with questions, comments, and concerns for the next mailbag uh, episode. You can send it all to the longest email address on demand, basketballconferencepodcast at gmail.com. Nailed it. Thank you. And you want to tell them where they can find us on the social medias? Facebook, facebook.com slash basketballconference rate review. Find all of our podcasts there, Joey. Please do, please do. And thank you so much to those who already have. Helps us more than you know when you uh, drop ratings for us. So we really appreciate it. Mike, anything else before we get out of here? We're good, man. On to week five. Yeah, on to it. Getting really uh, into the meat of conference play now. So rubber really hits the road by now if it hasn't already. It's been a uh, tumultuous season of out of conference play. We'll say that. A weird September. <laughs> Wake me up. Oh boy. September's over after this week. So stay asleep if you really are into Green Day. Uh, Mike, you want to come back and preview week five? I do, man. Let's do it. All right. I'll stop singing now. All right. (laughs)
Until next time, for Mr. Mike McDaniel, I am Joey Weaver. We'll talk to you guys again soon. And uh, Until next time, go ACC. Go ACC.